Hello and welcome to Deep in the D-Pad, where we explore all things gaming through an intellectual lens. I'm your friendly neighborhood host and game designer, Carlos, and with me, as always... is R.K. Taylor. On today's episode, as you can tell by the title, we're talking about types of gamers. We're trying to classify them. We have genres for movies, books, and games. Now we have genres for people. Gamers, specifically, sitting down in their Omegatron chair, drinking their G Fuel promo code, cool shirts, fighting on their epic PewDiePie bridges. We need to classify these creatures so that we can better understand them and sell to them. Because as always, we are ruled by corpo overlords that need to pinch every last penny out of our pockets. And what better way to do that than figure out what box we fall into, right? So let's get right into it after we first have our d-pad delights so for today's d-pad delights we will be talking about our gameplay styles uh ryan and i we each have our own unique styles we like certain genres but when we go into the games we have different methodology to approaching things and that's what creates our style we have different goals and motivations so I think a good question for us with this delight is to ask what game leaned into our style so much that it really just created a memorable experience and how did it resonate with us and why did it resonate with us? And to start things off, I'll bring up the game Shadow Complex. Uh, Shadow Complex is a Metroidvania meaning heavy exploration and upgrade-centric uh, gameplay. 2.5D, so you're side-scrolling, lots of platforming. Uh, Shadow Complex had the like military uh, thriller conspiracy angle to it, and the character would get these like robo-suit upgrades throughout the game, which made me very excited because I liked sci-fi, but it also meant, like, you would get the ability to double jump, the ability to, like, run super fast, which let you either, like, clear gaps better, or you could straight run up walls, which was very cool. And uh, that kind of, like, rolled my love of exploration in games with, like, the platforming and with the upgrades, and all of that just created such a very fun experience and something that I hadn't really like sunk my teeth into like that since maybe Metroid Fusion back on like Visual Boy Advance, right? How like, old were you when you played Shadow Complex? Uh, I was in middle school, I'm guessing like pre-15, I don't know the exact age, but I think I was less than 15. Okay. Uh, so yes, I was young, I was young. <laughs> Uh, but Ryan, uh, how about you? What what do you like to play, and what game impacted you, like by going right into your playstyle? Yeah, so I've been I've been thinking about uh, Pokemon Snap recently because uh, the new Pokemon Snap is, came out in 2021, um, and I was thinking about what Pokemon Snap did for me as a kid. And I didn't play a lot of shooting games. Um, I'm not sure if I wasn't allowed or if I just didn't gravitate toward them. Um, but when I was like probably like six years old, I got Pokemon Snap, which I think probably introduced me to first-person shooting mechanics. Um, and he, for anybody who doesn't know, like on with Pokemon Snap, you're on, it's kind of like a like a, a rail shooter, um, which is like kind of like a carryover from like 
arcade era when you'd be holding like a gun and like the, your character would move once you cleared the enemies, right? Like a shooting gallery type uh, situation. Um, but for Pokemon Snap, you're you're on rails, and um, there are different ways that you can interact with the Pokemon. So, so for example, there's like an apple that you can throw, and you know, near tall grass, and a Pokemon might come out and, and eat the apple. Um, so there's a level of interactivity and exploration uh, in that game. Uh, but there's also the first person shooting mechanic without combat, which I think is something that we don't really see very often. Um, so I found that to be like it was unique at the time. I mean, first person shooting in general was was unique. Also, shooting is so funny because, like, you're shooting with, like, a camera. It's, like, it's actually, you know, it's not, uh, I don't know. It, I guess it works both ways. Um, I wonder if that's even how it was, like, developed in part. Like, you know, people throwing around ideas and, you know, they talk about shooting. And it's, like, well, what could you shoot Pokemon with? Yeah, I could totally see that being a very, like, Nintendo type of challenge. I don't know if they, like, do game jams in those studios. But I could see that being kind of like a sort of, like, how do we put first-person shooting on its head? And then, like, boom, you have, like, let's do shooting through a camera, Pokemon Snap. That's really cool. So, like, you, you're you're into first-person shooters. Like, first-person shooters are pretty easy to, you know, kind of figure out. You, like, look around and you point. But in this case, it's not, like, focused on the combat. It's way more focused on, like, finding beauty in the world and, like, even creating that beauty through opportunity, right? Like setting out the the apple for Pikachu to eat before he hops on a surfboard or something like that. And uh, all this talk really makes me want to play the Nintendo Switch uh, Pokemon Snap, which I have yet to get my hands on. But all this makes me want to play uh, Hey You Pikachu with a working microphone. Can can they can they remake that game? Like I'm really into the idea of like being able to have like a little Pokemon who responds to my every whim. Yeah, I feel like they could do a much better version of that today, but I feel like they're waiting to, uh, remember how they made those like little BB-8 bots when uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens came out? I think they're waiting for like that tech to get better so they can make little just Pikachu bots and then we'll really be in like some future tech shit where we see kids like Ryan's toy reviews walking around with a little like legion of Robo Pikachus as his pets. It's like it's like a Roomba like meets a Chihuahua. Like you can have a purse, oh you can have a goodness. purse for your little robot. Like yeah, a Roomba meets a Chihuahua is the perfect description of that. Wait, really quick. I, uh, yeah. Both like the Hey You Pikachu and the and the Pokemon Snap also are great for people who don't want combat but enjoy like the Pokemon universe or like want to explore it. Or they're they're so gentle and. Um, you know, not to say that there's anything wrong or that there's, like, gratuitous violence or anything in, in the Pokemon world, but, I mean, it's essentially cockfighting, right? Like, right. it's just, like, people, like, taking these, like, animal-type creatures and, like, beating the shit out of them with each other in order yeah. to, like, prove their own, like, you know, bravado, basically. Like, it's like, look how cool I am. I own something that can beat something you own. Like, screw right. you. And talking about it from a more gamer level it's like that is translated into slow turn-based menu interface combat it's not actually like you know it's not like tekken but with pokemon right it's not pokin tag tournament you know whatever they actually made uh, so for me over time you lose me because the combat is like not not sustaining my interest and for the more moral people or or the people who have a problem with the more like uh, real world implication of of the logic of things like you have these games that don't center around that that system which is just 
it's it's cool it shows like it shows what is very fun about extending your ip in different ways and now let's get deeper into the d-pad all right so let's figure out how gamers are classified maybe that's like a little too big of a question to get into so early on but we know that players have specific uh desires or motivations that attract them to certain games and that creates classifications so maybe let's actually start with like what determines the kind of games someone is drawn to or maybe what's like the first thing somebody notices when they're browsing a game which uh in my experience usually seems to be uh players notice visuals the gameplay or the story like those are the three things and one will be noticed as soon as the trailer hits what do you think about that like, does that re- resonate with you? Are you one that immediately notices one of those three things when it comes to making a buying decision on a game or even deciding if you will follow the game's hype cycle more? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think if, like, theme might be its own category or, like, aesthetic, but I guess aesthetic is kind of the the the, the glue that cements these things together, right? The aesthetic is is like fully fleshed out and cultivated if the visuals and mechanics and narrative are all kind of in sync and doing something that that like is harmonious together. Um I think that like visuals is probably my biggest draw. I'm I'm really interested in uh seeing how you know, how much color uh, people are using, you know, like the inside in limbo, right. For example, like are games that are very dark and the, like you could, the whole mood of the game, you know, is, is influenced by that, that like darkness. Um, I think that narrative is like usually the hardest sell for me in games, just because uh, like so many games have just like absolutely trash or like recycled narratives. Um, there are times where I'm like really impressed or like I see what like with Control or Celeste both of those games I found to be like uh, I was was super engaged with the narrative you know it wasn't just something something like passive that I was like forced to sit through right are you familiar with the Carmack quote about uh, story in games no the John Carmack uh, who now works uh, at Oculus but used to work on Doom like he's one of the original creators of Doom anyway Back then, he said that about story in games, that story is to games as story is to porn. Like, it's it's supposed to be there, but it's really, like, not paid attention to. Which, uh, funny enough, the act man calls out in one of his more recent videos, but at this point is very clearly, like, the opposite. Like, definitely, like, like story and porn has gotten a bit better, like, if they put more money into it. But... Uh, in games, story is kind of like what's driving the biggest like budget games currently outside of, say, the live service type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're saying, like most AAA narrative like solo like solo experiences are 
very like it could be multiplayer like, as well like if you think of say maybe marvel's avengers or destiny right those those have a story that like a group of people can progress through whereas uh days gone or uncharted is is the single player experience that still presents a store a narrative that the player can progress through start to end uh it's just that those live service ones are designed you know like world of warcraft where the story gets new modules tacked on every so often yeah i mean i think that the story is is like one of the most expendable parts right like like you can play asteroids and not know the name of anybody you can play pac-man and like if the like if not for the title would you know who what what a pac-man is you know um and like it's they're still fun pong is you know or like sports games you know like you don't you don't absolutely need a story whereas like with a book if you're reading like a fiction book you need a story like there needs to be a plot like what else would you be doing unless it was like a highly experimental non-narrative work uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why, why story kind of gets like maybe put on the back burner or, or like one of the things that I think about with writing is, is like an internal journey versus an external journey. And a lot of genre fiction, um, you know, Lord of the Rings and, you know, Harry Potter and most sci-fi and most fantasy pieces of works are dealing with an external journey. Like the, the a hero has to conquer some land. Uh, the person has to rescue the princess, those kinds of tropes, right? Um, they're often recycled in games rather than it being an internal journey um, of, of growth and, um, you know, overcoming. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned Celeste because Celeste is like a game about overcoming depression and facing your shadow self. And the the external journey that we're taking uh, the character through is is a metaphor for the internal journey that she's experiencing you know and and in some ways it's kind of crude i'm climbing a mountain is the is is the actual physical journey um but and the way that that parallels the emotional journey you know i mean like the idea of climbing a mountain as like emotional perseverance is essentially like the little engine who could right but so it's not even like it's uh super profound but it was still more fresh than most of the the things in video games, which is like, you know, get the Triforce, you know, stop evil. Exactly, yeah. Damsel in distress, grab damsel, okay, yay. So I think this is a good time to bring up Bartle's taxonomy of players because we've talked about kind of like what draws us initially. I'm way more of a gameplay mechanics guy, and then maybe the visuals and narrative will pull me secondarily. But Bartle's taxonomy of players is one of the older uh, classification models for video game players. It was established uh, based on a paper back in 1996 by Richard Bartle, and it establishes these categories according to the player's preferred actions within the video game. And funny enough, this started out originally describing uh, online multiplayer gamers, and then ended up getting kind of like fixed onto single player games. Um, but we have more updated models and we'll talk about that in a bit. But I just wanted to bring up uh, Bartle's taxonomy because uh, that's that's the understanding we had early on of players. You had these four classifications. You had the killers, the achievers, the socializers, and the explorers. And within that, you have like the motivations of like, do players want to... Do players want to see other players? Do they want to like play with other players? Or do they want to harm other players? And that's where you start to break up between like killers and socializers. And you have like 
do players want to like touch everything around the world or do they just literally want to walk around the world and that's where you get your like different types of explorers like the physical explorers versus the more like geographical explorers and then you have the achievers who will want to you know go out and get every achievement such as our younger selves or like conquer every boss or get all the uh the weapons and stuff this is now kind of a more outdated model or it's more so outdated because it's so broad at this point um but ryan what what do you think about bartles because you recently learned about it so i want to get i want to know what you think yeah so just to like give it like another another breakdown it's there's an x-axis and a y-axis right so and both of these are like you know continuums con- continua is that is continua the okay the on the x <laughs> on the x-axis uh it, there are players right so in the negative area uh, sorry the x-axis is players versus world right so positive we can say is is whether the person would prefer to interact with the world itself and the negative side would be uh they want they would prefer to act uh, interact with players so like multiplayer games right and then right. and then with the you know let's say let's just take the players for a second right if people people who want to play multiplayer experiences some of them want to have like r- want to role play and like be immersed in like the t- hanging out with other people and it's not about like the competitive aspects of it those people would be considered um interacting with the world and they, their category is socializers at the other end. Yeah, and just to give some examples of, of the socializers, right? These are the people who, say, play Second Life or VR Chat, or they might jump into, let's say, World of Warcraft on, like, the roleplay servers. Uh, you know, like, they're very much into it for the communal experience and not so much, not necessarily the objective or the like conflict therein. It is way more of the social, social aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the X axis is players and world. The Y axis is acting versus interacting, right? So the socializers are the interacting and the killers is the name of the category for people who like to play with other players and are also like acting. So it's not being um, responsive as much, right? Like socializers that requires more of like a collaboration and like a community. Whereas like killers would be like, like call of duty. Like you, you jump into a match and it's just about interacting with other, uh, it's just about you and other players. And it's about um, your immediate impulses and the ways that you're, responding as soon as you see someone right and in a way that isn't collaborative it's it's competitive your goal if you're a killer is to be the person leading the leaderboard moving away from like the multiplayer side right with people who prefer to interact with the world um there's still the y-axis of interacting and acting right so the world people who enjoy interacting with the world uh, are called explorers, and people who enjoy acting with the world are called achievers. The difference is, do you want to you want to pitch explorers, Carlos? Yeah. So the explorers are the ones who are pretty much like traversing and touching like everything. Uh, the the explorers are people who will try to interact with the world. So think of maybe your Indiana Joneses, right, where you're feeling every brick, trying to like find the secret tomb. And, you know, once you're in there, like grabbing all the treasures and pulling additional levers to see what happens. Whereas if we get into the achievers, uh, that's more so the ones 
the players who go out into the world and seek the things to uh, conquer more so. Right, collectibles, right? So, like, if you're the kind of person who's going to play Mario 64 and get all 120 stars, it's not so much about exploring the world, but it's about achieving the world. It's about, you know, you're essentially conquering the kingdom if you get every single, if you find every single star that's been hidden there. So having a very powerful character right in like a metroidvania making sure you have as many hearts as possible those kinds of things um those are all the motivations of the achiever it's kind of about the long-term growth exactly you i I know you said that this is kind of like an outdated model and like i know it's you know a couple decades old and honestly video games have just uh drastically changed since um this this was like this organization style was was conceived yeah i do think it's a useful heuristic in the show description, I'm going to uh, put a link called the Bartle Test of Gamer Psychology, uh, which allows you to to take this test, and it'll show you where you are, are on the graph. Um, I'm not sure if that's, like, a super formal or official thing, or uh, or if it's just kind of, like, more casual uh, and, like... It's kind of like a casual slash... I mean, it's totally informed by, like, you know, the model and stuff, but... Uh, I think you need to do like a lot more surveys or whatever to get like a super hardcore reading. But I did this uh, survey link back in college to get like my reading and stuff. Oh, you for did one of my freshman classes. Yeah, the, yeah, I learned about this in my freshman year, uh, like intro to game dev. Nice. Uh, no, sorry, game history and development class. That's what it was. Where uh, are you? Are you an achiever history. or explorer or something? Oh, I'm I'm super explorer and then probably like halfway into socializer and achievers. Um, I, I am the type of player, like I said with my D-pad delight, who likes to explore and get every nook and cranny. So when I'm starting in a level, I will turn around and go backwards and see if the designer like hid anything there because that's where I wasn't expected to go. Um, and then also I really like playing with friends and I still, even though I don't go for all the achievements anymore, I still like uh, getting rewarded for completing uh, challenges, which is why I'm actually... I think playing Resident Evil 8 so much, it just keeps rewarding me for, like, every playthrough I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, like, part achiever, part socializer. I was, like, pretty close um, to to those two. Um, and they definitely provide different needs. Like, achiever is, is more of, like, my solo gaming style. Um, I, re- I enjoy... Um, I don't enjoy role-playing. Right. Like I don't I don't do anything like that, but I'm willing to play a lot of different kinds of games. You know, we've talked about card games, talked about board games and uh, when other people are there and, you know, if there's like a team effort, I I always find that to be really fun. And it's just like a nice, like excuse to socialize almost. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about it every now and then how like uh, Battle Royale games or the live service games have become kind of like the new hangout. Right. Fortnite. Uh, Warzone, Rocket League, we can just sit down, chill with friends, and before that, it was like World of Warcraft or you know whatever on Ventrilo. Yeah, uh, the it's oh, man, it's there's so so many places to go. Um, <laughs> I I see a part of myself in all of the different categories though, and perhaps that's part yeah. of the reason why it feels like it's not not fully satisfying. Uh, it, it's as if you know the game that I'm gravitating toward is fulfilling whatever that need is right now. And those are all different types of needs. Yeah, and I think, you know, the reason why this is 
not wholly applicable is because again it's only like four categories and we have oh so many even within i would say older games we have oh so many motivations which is why quantic foundry gamer motivation model is more accurate it has a lot more uh categories to it and better narrows down exactly what a player is looking for and it also helps that games allow us to do a lot more today but i guess now's a good time to take a look at quantic foundry's gamer motivation model versus bartles and again we are trying not to overwhelm your mind right now so we're gonna try to talk about this in a light way because there's like 12 or whatever like motivation models um so like breaking it down We've talked about, you know, killers, achievers, explorers, socializers. We've talked about the things we like to do. In Quantic Foundry's model, which is, like, much more recent, uh, has uh, articles uh, as, as recent as uh, 2015 and sooner, but 2015 is what I'm seeing right now for the motivation uh, model that we'll add in the link for link description for the show. So Nikki authored the uh, Quantic Foundry article that we're talking about that's called player segments based on gaming motivations and this will be linked the idea the way that it's different from the the past one is that it's not just analyzing things and across two dimensions um it's it's analyzing uh clusters of traits that different gamers uh may exhibit and then it's it's looking at how these different traits cluster uh and then based on that can place you as one of 12 types of gamers and a limitation with this model of course is going to be that you know gamers are dynamic and they may like different types of games or they may like different types of games for different reasons so i i think that we're going to run into the to a very similar problem carl do you want to say anything about the specific traits that they're looking for or um is that something like the gamer motivational model do you is there anything specific about that that you think that needs to be said yeah, I would like to say that from a developer standpoint, I like it. It's way more accurate, and when you're able to use it, it gives uh, my job way more information that is useful. Uh, I suppose one could like reach out and like use this model and you know better focus their resources towards certain mechanics over others, uh, right? So I like it from that standpoint. I like it from the like academic standpoint of, you know, just trying to figure out what drives players and, you know, where everybody gets categorized. I can't really add anything uh, more of weight to it because I'm not as much a statistician i believe is the word i am not good at statistics but uh this organization does the legwork of getting out there and um surveying hundreds of thousands if not more people to get this data and uh that's awesome i really appreciate it yeah it's, they they analyzed over five hundred thousand gamers which is a ton and there are graphs up the wazoo. I mean, yeah, it's it's next level. And, and just to take like two categories of the two of the twelve, right? Like one is gardener is is their term for it. And I think like Animal Crossing is a game that they um, 
use as an example or the sims that like any of the games in that series and the idea is that these games are quiet and they require like task completion um oh what's that yeah viva pinata right would also be like a very gardener heavy game um and then a game like celeste which we've mentioned earlier in the show and is also one of the ones that they uh they mention would be an acrobat game or it would be a game for acrobats so people who like to test their reflexes so Carl, you're saying that like in like in terms of like applying this to your job, if you knew that your game was very like acrobatic, let's say, right, or it was appealing to acrobatic like players of the acrobat mm-hmm. type, uh, and let's say we also we further discovered that uh, you know if we if you added you know just a small amount of like gardening mechanics into the game, uh, then like you might have a surge in. And the game might have a surge in popularity because now it's kind of like crossing lines that maybe aren't too common, right? Yeah, so the way this is very useful is like when we're making our game, um, we need to figure out like who we're making it for, right? You're always building a game for someone else, even though you're probably going to play it way more than anyone else is going to play it. Like you're making it for someone else. And so at that point... Figuring out like whether you're making a new IP or working on an existing IP, you need to figure out what are the expectations within that. So getting these player segments, that's what we're calling out, the acrobat and the gardener are player segments that come from uh, figuring out your motivations and stuff. If we figure out that our player segment for whatever game we're making let's say uh donkey kong players were suddenly really testing as gardeners then nintendo would say well let's lean into that if if everyone we're surveying about donkey kong is saying oh i really liked task completion and i really liked this like weird donkey kong game where i was just petting puppies all the time i liked it way better than donkey kong country i don't know why but i just loved it then nintendo would reasonably go okay i guess this is where the money is and make donkey kong's uh garden grove and boom, like you'd have maybe a million sellers. Like, that's the thought, right? Like, oh, if we can pinpoint what they love, then we make what they love and we profit. And the triple question mark is this, like, I guess, like, make it work or the or the model that we're seeing in front of us. Was that a succinct enough answer or did I ramble a little too much there? No, that was good. I like that. Yeah, it seems like it's more macroscopic than I was thinking. Like it, you like you may not be directly able to apply this in, in in your job, but you think that like maybe like producers or like higher ups who are like the shot callers are are more of the people who would have influence and would be like funding these studies ostensibly. Yeah, I think so. Me as a level designer putting together the actual content that players would be then playing in the end product uh i don't really see much of this stuff right now influencing my day-to-day work but when it comes to the creation of the project and the actual concept itself like nursing that into life that is more so like where it would come into play because i'm now going to switch metaphors and put game development in the metaphor of a say b2 bomber on a flight um 
once that plane takes off, aka the concept is agreed upon and you're now going in engine and like making actually starting to make a level or multiple levels for it uh the the plane is off the ground you already know what your player segments are and you just need to make sure you stay on course till you reach the 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 finish line okay you know games like like uh like deer hunter um like simulators that are or like like a microsoft flight simulator like those i think those games are appealing to um a very specific like population right um that i think the creators of those games know that they're not for everybody but almost like cult following right um what is it do you think that there's something about a, a specific personality trait you know putting aside these two methodologies for trying to to classify gamers do you think that there's something about about like people's like inherent disposition that leads them to pursue different types of games and like can we talk about that or is there is there enough there like i would never play a hunting simulator i feel like that's probably made for people who actually like hunting but that like can't go hunting at 1 p.m you know like if you have to wake up early for hunting and you know i i think that like the people who would want to live the experience of hunting uh you know or or crave it more don't get to go maybe it's something that they they enjoy but they can't do all the time right um or or like uh like do people who play who's still playing rock band are those like the diehard music lovers or those you know is it the mechanics or is it like the the fact that like they never thought guitar hero should have died and like they continue to want to like jam and listen to their favorite songs or blah you know yeah I actually was kind of going to pose that same question to you, more so from the psychological angle, though. Uh, I'll I'll answer your question from just what I think of maybe the the gamer, <laughs> if that's all. That, yeah, that's how I'll put it. Uh, how many R's so, are yeah. in a gamer? <laughs> With a U and then like five <laughs> R's after that. But, uh, so talking about the the rock band or the Guitar Hero guy, like, yeah, I think we we still see, you know, a fair number of streamers who, like, play uh, Guitar Hero-type games. It's, like, modded nowadays so that you can get whatever song. And it's way more about the challenge in that case than the actual, like, playing the music itself. I think there are still people that certainly like to get friends together and have the experience of like playing these music rhythm games but i i don't think it's as often an occurrence as it was when the music rhythm boom was happening um so i guess maybe what you're getting into if you're talking about people who like are really die hard and playing like oldies or maybe more so like the 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 retro gamers or the classic people like you know angry video game nerd or uh like og john tron or you know mm-hmm. like they're they're kind of like the historians like we talked about in an earlier episode retro gamers in a way like Maybe they're more historians than other gamers. Maybe that's just the type of game they like, and eventually it leads to them making their own modern game with retro sensibilities. Like, uh, something I saw recently was Yeek, or Y2K. Uh, It's this... 
Okay, sorry. I'm like trying to figure out how to describe it, but I think it just calls itself a postmodern RPG. And you and I have talked about postmodern games on this show in the past. And uh, that game is certainly uh, an interesting uh, piece that serves a very specific audience, but in a way might more so serve its uh, creator. And that's fine. I mean, like, yeah. That's how I feel about Hypnospace Outlaw. Oh, dude, yeah, totally. Like, Like, Hypnospace, I can't believe how many hours I put into Hypnospace Outlaw because I didn't have a single moment of fun the entire time. But I was so mesmerized by the, this is like a 90s uh, software sim. So you play as, like, basically someone who is trying to control the early internet traffic and make sure that people aren't committing acts of harassment or like illegal sales and you know and merchandising and right but you should you should let them know that like the actual gameplay is basically holding a mouse and navigating windows 98 yeah like Basi- that, yeah, that's the totally, gameplay totally you're stop you're stopping traffic you're saving the internet all through mouse clicks and, and, and it's so boring but, interfaces but there's so, <laughs> and there's so much written i couldn't believe they have so many different web pages and you're on web pages of these like fictional characters that that these creators came up with and it isn't supposed to be fun i don't i really don't think that it's supposed to be kind of like detective worky maybe a little bit of point and clicky uh like you know mechanics because you are like just a cursor um yeah I, i don't know uh very very interesting game uh that i think in a way serves the the creator more than any of the people who play it but it does kind of stretch our the limits of of how we think of games and like what a game could be right yeah and you know to bring this conversation around i think full circle uh artsy people are the people who would want to play the two games that we just mentioned right like you have to be in order to stay engaged with it at all you have to be open-minded to you know creative interpretations of the word game you have to be at a meta level of like i am not just consuming this for fun i am going to just like consume this as it is which most games are not tailored for right and i think in a way actually like death stranding is the most recent like big budget artsy game that would be in that same genre of like yeah games you either are into or are not and it's totally fine if you're not because they are doing unconventional things and uh the other thing i wanted to bring up was with your like hunting simulator question i wanted to juxtapose the hunting simulator to papers please which is a game that i have like played and replayed never actually beat it but i keep replaying it every few months because i am oddly uh entertained and or satisfied by this fantasy and or loop of being a papers inspector being a like passport inspector and making sure like the the border is safe through just mundane stamping of papers and looking at somebody's face like that to me is fun in a gamified in a gamified stance i wouldn't want to do that as my actual job but 
it serves a specific niche. I don't see that type of game like reaching mass audiences and people being like, oh yeah, I love just stamping paper, ha ha ha, stamp paper and look at a face. And that is to say for your like hunting simulator thing, I think there are people who may be on the fence about hunting and might try a video game to see if even the game version of it is like an appealing experience before going out and actually doing it. And then there's another subset of people who are like, oh yeah, I absolutely love playing these hunting games, but would I ever like actually hold a gun? Hell no. Like there's like, I think a whole kind of gray spectrum of these like players of like, what like what I just said, those who are like against it and those who are like gung-ho about it and then the, those who are in the middle who just want like certain parts of it. Maybe some people are like, oh, I don't like hunting games with uh, actual gunpowder weapons. I like hunting games that just go all natural and I use a machete and a bow or I use snares. Like I could see interesting takes from people like that, but I don't know if we would see that on like a mass market level. So you're describing different types of players. There are people who are all in, and then there are a couple of different kinds of people who are on the fence about it, people who are uh, like kind of sampling what it might be like to hunt to see if that's something that they might want to do in real life, or people who are already resigned or foreclosed on the idea of hunting. Like They know that they are not interested in hunting in real life, but they still would like to maybe learn about it or experience it. So could the same be said with Microsoft Flight Simulator? I mean, most people don't have the opportunity to actually fly, fly a plane, but you'd assume that anybody who would play that would have some kind of interest in, like, plane technology or learning about planes, either wishing that they could fly a plane or having no desire to get off the ground but still wishing that they could understand the inside of a cockpit. You know, about I think simulation games have that kind of thread in common where it's the opportunity for people to sample or... Uh, you know, try something out or learn about something that they may otherwise not, um, or to just yeah. get better at something that they're already passionate about or learn more about. Something. I think there's also a role play factor too. Actually, you know, you keep talking about Flight Simulator, and finally, some of my memory synapses fired off, and I remembered seeing uh, all these like compilations of Twitch streamers, and you know, maybe there was a whole marketing thing behind that. But anyway, a lot of the more fun clips. And this is true of like American Truck Simulator, right? And Euro Truck Simulator, Trucker Simulator, Farmer Simulator. The the streamers who actually like role play out the thing, like they, it's more fun, it's more engaging to watch them. It almost seems like a better gameplay experience. Like when the guy has like a full suit on and the and the pilot's hat, and he puts on the aviator glasses, and then he actually has like even the the very complex like flight stick layout rather than the other thing and he's saying like oh this is your captain speaking uh, we got choppy weathers and he's like flying over like that whole thing that's actually something you can't even necessarily get from a game that's trying to simulate that experience because i think if a game tries to simulate that experience for you right like giving you a captain character and even like saying the dialogue for you and stuff that is role-playing for you you are not the one role-playing so that's even another thing uh, going back to us talking about the socializers and the role players like simulation games can help for that role play without putting any sort of goofy abstraction on it yeah are there any other types of games that might um, reveal a specific uh, like set of traits that we might see uh, in a player 
um, that that is that's like different than most video games. You know, like something that isn't necessarily supposed to be fun as the primary. I feel like like you know platformers and shooters, and even though they might be very different types of players who who would be interested in let's say a first person uh, like realistic graphics shooter versus a platformers, but I think both people are trying to have fun at the end of the day. Uh, when I play card games, I'm not trying to have fun. I'm, like, trying to, like, expend mental energy. You know, like, I'm trying to, like, think as hard as I can and to, like, make really calculated decisions. And and card games are interesting because they are, like, a medium and a genre. You know, it's... Uh-huh. And I, I don't know what to make of that. Um, You know, I'm talking specifically about digital card, card games right now. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that or, like, what might... What might I be finding appealing, or what might people in general be finding appealing about uh, about card games? Like, what might that say about a, a person's, you know, play style, or if if their motivation is not necessarily like joy or you know elation? Yeah, I think most of the time, if not all the time, our goal is to be stimulated. I think that's kind of the joy. The, Honestly, like the joy might not even be the right emotion, right? Because like we oftentimes will go to a game for challenge, although I'm not talking about the gardeners necessarily because the gardeners, they want a quiet, relaxing, task-completing time. That may not require challenge. It may just require patience. Um, And how that relates to the card games is that... I think card games tend to appeal, depending on how the cards are used or how the card mechanics are used and what they're used with, I think they tend to lean towards more cerebral players, players who like logic puzzles, players who may like to like sit down for a few minutes and figure out this Resident Evil puzzle. That's why I'm, that's what I mean by logic puzzle. It's like the, ooh, I'm going to mix these two liquids in oh so many ways. Whereas uh, someone maybe more into like an action puzzle which is like oh no i'm in a sunken town and this bridge in front of me is raised but if i use my gun and and shoot this bundle of wood taped up with brightly yellow tape then the bridge falls down that's an action puzzle and those take you know like moments or less to solve whereas the logic puzzles can take way longer and for me card games tend to often appeal to the long puzzle types of players except for when they get integrated into action games like kingdom hearts re chain of memories or maybe it was just chain of memories i don't remember because they made so many kingdom hearts games but i remember really liking that one because it had this like live action system like you could run around the environment like smack people with your keyblade but you were using cards like there were cards in your hand so that game is impossible i hate that shit you you can't (laughs) have a card game that isn't turn-based like dude no way it works because it's it's tough and if anything it needs more iteration but i think it works because it creates this uh, ebb and flow of combat as long as people have cards and the action points are being mitigated at the correct time. It is, it's fucking Yu-Gi-Oh on motorcycles, like basically. And that has happened. I will find a clip and I will have to insert a link of Yu-Gi-Oh on motorcycles somewhere. But like, it's cool. It's action, but it's thinking. 
that's what that's me that's my monkey brain moment like if i'm gonna have thinking i want the action with it most of the time and i can appreciate the long the long form puzzles but i think you're a very cerebral person ryan and that's why the card games call out to you so much like that's why you get so into monster train that's why you dislike kingdom hearts chain of memories because it doesn't use the cards as cerebrally as you'd like <laughs> i've tried that game twice and i when i was a kid i thought i was too stupid for it but then i played it when i was in like my mid-20s and i was like no i i, I am too stupid for this like it, it's true i, I was right the first time <laughs> Oh man, uh. I, I think I'm the wrong kind of smart for that game. That's like I can't think and fight at the same time. That is like just my corpus colossum can't handle it. I'm like my brain is caving in. Yeah, <laughs> I think honestly that is that system has just carried over to modern day Final Fantasy. I'm pretty sure. Like without the need of like cycling through cards and stuff, you now like live battle, you run around the environment and you have this like sub menu that you got to navigate with the D-pad. Uh, but it feels good. I definitely was having a lot of fun playing the latest iteration of uh, Final Fantasy VII, uh, what they call remake. And what they call <laughs> what they call remake so Dude, ominous they... who are they you mean that's just the, na- <laughs> the name of the game <laughs> like <laughs> the ceo of square enix descends upon us with red laser eyes like Spree! uh but yeah man getting it back to like card games and all this classification stuff i think these classifications can kind of work just as well within cards and board games like the different mediums um because you still have objectives and you still have the, the the different components of like i'm playing dominoes okay well you're not playing that single player or you know maybe you are but you have certain motivations in it like the sort of like definition and motivations are going to be kind of different you know this is built for video games but i think because it is still game at its root you can kind of finagle it to fit those different uh mediums better yeah i'm thinking about like you know how like in like uh in like the newer civ games or maybe all of them or maybe just one of them you, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> there are like multiple ways to achieve a victory you know it's like you can have a faith victory you can have a militaristic yeah, that's or... in every okay that's in every civ game yeah. nice um like i wonder if there's something to be said for like what draws people to this and Armello is like this too, right? Like Armello has yeah. multiple different victories. I wonder if the the kind of uh, victory that a person is likely to try to achieve, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are some things that are like circumstantial or situational, uh, and like you can be just responding and like as adaptive as you can. But let's say you're the kind of person who's always going to go for who's who's always going to like first think of a faith victory, right? Like, does that say something about you? Like, you know, it could be. Uh, it could reflect your, your, the relationship that you have with, like, faith yourself or, you know, like, with militaristic types of combat or something like that, right? I think it could partially be that. That's a cool way to look at it. Um, and the way that I, as a developer, tend to look at it is more so, like, what is the easiest way? Uh, like, 
with peace and love, all players want the easiest, laziest method of success. So, to me, that would mean in Armello, if I'm a knight-type character and my goal is to, like, deal with the Mad King, then I'm going to lean into my strength stat and, like, get a whole bunch of attack cards because that's that's what is immediately apparent to me as the easiest and fastest route to success whereas somebody who's a more experienced player may be like oh dog i can collect these four stones in three turns with whatever character i got and be done and so this kind of maybe brings us a little bit into like how do we figure out for ourselves what type of player we are and that's through like playing the game and figuring out like how do we approach the game and or the challenges within the game and then like how how do we end up playing like as our time with the game goes on like i just explained with the knight versus the the universal player who could just win with whatever which like uh my friend cody he's basically that wizard type character for uh mario party he has like some sort of internal like clock that is perfectly in tune with mario party games and he'll just like win every time via i swear it's via the like um whichever stars you don't have control over at the end like that's the landslide where he just triggers it the bonus stars yeah the bonus stars like doesn't doesn't matter what like you could play whatever type of style you want. You could be extra dirty and just completely like kick them in the corner for all the mini games. And it's like, nah, uh, uh, I got this code cracked. You're not beating me. <laughs> um, so yeah, like everyone should, you know, if you're playing games and you feel like thinking a little bit more, maybe ask yourself, like, what am I doing in this game right now? Why am I doing it? Like, why are you yourself doing it? Why did you decide to go out to the store, pick that game, and then pop it in and play it? You've been working hard. You've been busting your butt How however dated? you do. What, what, what year are you in where people are still buying physical games? There is a lot of people still buying physical There's games. There's a lot we'll, more we'll people. That topic. A lot we'll leave that topic for not. another episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big topic for another episode. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to hear from some of you, like, what drives you to play certain games? Like, what's your favorite game and what drives you to just, like, pop, play it? I'm not even going to say pop it in. What drives you to click to on download it, it through your future interface and then play it in your 2021 time? <laughs> oh, my goodness. As is new tradition on our show, we begin the end with a skill treat. A sweet piece of knowledge to impart on everyone listening to this show. You're trapped with us listening. I'm trapped with Ryan. He's got to keep listening to me till I finish introing this segment. And by the time this segment is done, we will have all learned something new. Or we will end up like the high school auditorium in Billy Madison, where we end up horribly stupider for having listened to any of this. Are you excited for today's skill treat, Ryan? Yeah, dude, I don't know anything about Cognitive Load, so hit me. Well, we've been talking about it all damn episode. Today we'll be learning about Cognitive Load Theory. So first let me describe what Cognitive Load Theory is as the website describes it before we then talk about it and maybe go off the rails. Who knows? So 
Cognitive load theory, as described by MindTools.com, was developed by John Sweller, who published a paper on the subject in the Cognitive Science Journal in 1988. The cognitive load relates to the amount of information that working memory can hold at one time. Sweller said that since working memory has a limited capacity, instructional methods should avoid overloading it with additional activities that don't directly contribute to the learning. So we could have a diagram of an example that has, say, sensory memory that then flows into working memory that then flows in and out of long-term memory. Long-term memory is like the deepest of your, like, cognitive load receptor right as information comes in like let's say you're watching a movie or let's actually rather take it back to learning let's say you're being taught arithmetic you're being shown the problem on screen that income incoming information is going through your sensory memory which gets forgotten like the quickest and the soonest um then it goes into your working memory and working memory is reinforced through rehearsal and this is you sitting in class repeating like okay four times three is 12 uh four times four 16 whatever yeah. and repeating rote yeah like rote learning um also like memorizing the digits of pi you know you're con you can be holding right. those in your working memory working memory and short-term memory are the same thing okay yeah and so as you rehearse and you nail that in there, uh, enough rehearsal can encode it into your long-term memory. And once it's encoded, that encoded memory, that encoded data, I guess, can be retrieved back into your working memory. So you're talking about you're talking about basically like learning and thinking more efficiently. Is that is it kind of like mental um, like the, your mind's bonsai tree? Uh, not so much. No, it's more about um, how we communicate and pace out information for my job specifically how we pace out information to players um, in general this could just be like how much information a person can like take in and retain and build upon um, and cognitive load theory helps us to understand at least roughly like how much we should throw at someone Right. So let's take it back to like when we were in school, we would have to take like finals or regents, you know, these big cumulative tests of like all the things we learned for the past six to nine months, whatever. And those were always like, oh, shit moments because you had to bring up all the things you learned in the last like eight months but you're still just learning new stuff in this current month and the new stuff is going to be on the test. So you're like, what the hell? I've got to like re-remember all this stuff from a long time ago and like, and not only learn, but also master slash remember what I'm learning like this month. That is what I would consider just cognitive overload, but we deal with it. It apparently is suitable enough for the government <laughs> to keep subjecting students to or whatever. You, you think that it's asking more than humans are capable of? I think it's asking not more than what humans are capable of. Humans are capable of a great deal. Right. But there are 
like cognitive we have cognitive limitations even though we are resilient creatures and you know can withstand really dramatic circumstances like there's a there's a finite number of like sh- like things that you can handle in your short-term memory right like the average person can i think it's uh seven plus or minus two is like the number of things that a person can keep in their short-term memory and one of the ways that we deal with that right like if you think about a phone number right like uh, you'll group like you'll group numbers together so that they're fewer. Like if it's forty-two rather than four and two, then I'm I'm able to like bundle things so that like my my short-term memory can handle more like more digits basically. Yeah, you're bundling those to lessen the cognitive load. You're like it's way easier to reference twenty-three than saying two, three. Like literally, that half a second is like my brain putting an extra like five pounds in the dump truck, whatever. Um, So yeah, going a little less from the extreme examples, I'm saying like for those big tests, it's just like kind of needless overload. Like it's sort of, I understand there's a need for the long-term memory and maybe things are designed in a way where, yeah, sure, that like works out still, but I think the the tandem of like get tested on shit you're learning now and get tested on shit you were learning like a while ago seems like a little much. Some things build on each other, right? Like like I don't I don't know how this gets broken down into the cognitive load conversation, but you know, if you're learning about uh like algebra and you've already mastered arithmetic, then yes. then like you don't have to like re-remember arithmetic every time you use algebra you just like already know it and it's applied arithmetic yeah and so i'm gonna bring that back into video games now because you actually mentioned something really good things that build upon each other so me as a game designer and level designer i have to think about the things that i want to introduce to the player as like obstacles or tools for them to overcome and or use and now bringing it back to the testing example and or video games right the the big the big regents exam is like okay let's take your long-term memory and your working memory and dump it all into like the same fucking paper the final boss is your is your state test you know in a way yeah and i think in some ways that it's I was initially going to say, I think in some ways that it's different is that like games do more of like building upon things towards that final boss. Whereas in real life, you know, not everything is harmoniously tied together in a progression that makes sense for the final encounter. So I think we end up getting these uh, moments in, in those final exam examples where we are like, oh, no. I, I learned arithmetic and I learned like the, the thing that builds upon that, but like where the fuck did proofs come out of? Like there's some sort of like appendage that just may not have like related to something else. Um, or maybe it's perceived by the user that it just came out of nowhere. But uh, for my job, the way this relates is that, you know, we have to think about the three types of memories and how that relates to our mechanics. Um, so, like, let's maybe take Days Gone as, a, as an example. In your long-term memory, you kind of know 
okay, I got a bike and I can ride around. Um, uh, I can shoot things, right? And uh, I have an inventory. Like that's sort of your long-term memory. And the working memory is 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 more so like, I just learned about Molotovs. Okay, I'm going to use Molotovs to burn a nest. And now the, the like you played a mission that taught you you can use a Molotov to burn nests. And what are you going to do in the very next mission? You're going to have an entire hotel filled with nests, like four plus nests that you have the opportunity to burn out. Why? Because we just introduced a brand new piece of information to you. It hit your sensory memory. You saw, ooh, I can make a Molotov. Ooh, a Molotov can blow up and burn a nest. That's all brand new information and we just put it into your working memory. Now we need you to rehearse that five times through the next mission so you can remember. You absolutely should remember that you need to burn nests with the Molotov by throwing it. This is a lot of, this This already is very little information. I'm sorry if this is sounding horribly boring, but for a brand new player, this is a lot of information. They're in a new world. They don't understand what the hell's going on. And this world comes for them. So we need them to remember, hey, build a Molotov, throw it at a nest. The same way Miyamoto needs to remind you, hey, there's a Goomba, jump on it. Here's two Goombas, jump on it again. Oh, there's no Goombas, but there's a gap. You can use your jump to get over the gap. Boom. You had your working memory. You rehearsed it. Now you found out, oh, shit, this tool can actually be used for something else. And you're now going to have to rehearse that. And that will eventually make its way into your long-term memory because these are basic things that you're going to do so often. And eventually a new mechanic that you might use less but will still be, you know, very useful and need to get into your memory will show up. Like, like, let's say the cat suit from Mario, right? It's not something you always, always have, but when you get it, you're able to like use the stuff enough. You're able to rehearse enough that when you see it in the future, you're like, oh, I know exactly what that tool is. And my brain can reference what it does and how it could be useful in this situation. Um, so that's how level designers uh, have to consider pacing out their levels for, you know, teaching these mechanics as well as, you know, enemies or puzzles, just various things, you know, we heavily have to consider cognitive uh, load theory, uh, or at least we should consider cognitive load theory because there is certainly a plethora of games that are willing to just, you know, dump everything on you and say, go for it. Yeah, I want to not let the school thing go really quick uh, yeah. just because it keeps, uh, like, I don't know, um, lingering. First off, I want to say I'm not defending, uh, like, state tests or um, public education or anything like that. Nor I'm not indicting them either, but, I you know, I don't want to I don't want to seem like I have a stance on that when I'm not ready to make a case either way. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. But I do think that the goal of these tests, or the hope is that students will be able to demonstrate mastery throughout the year, and that, you know, ideally, a, a, a teacher would be able to uh, teach what they need to teach in order, at a pace that works for most of the people in the classroom, and, you know, if things are, even history, I think, builds on itself, right? Like, in order to understand the 1800s you have Amer in American history, you should also understand the 1700s in American history because 
you know, you need to, like, there, there was a whole formation. It's not like the 1800s happened, you know, in a vacuum. There's a whole context that, so the more yeah. history, the more parts of history you understand, the more you understand, like, the harmony and the actual, like, development and how things unfolded. Um, the same with math, right, where, it, it, like, it's not, it's not uh, chronological in the same way that history is, um, but, but things are, re- help reinforce each other, and there are multiple ways to, uh, like solve a particular problem once you learn, you know, more about math. It's it's hard to, without getting into specifics. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, I think like a game is like a tutorial is like this, right? Where it's like the there there are types of games that have tutorial. Like you you will have to successfully execute a, a motion or, or activity before you can move on to the next part of the tutorial. And that is ensuring that you have maybe not mastery, but competence uh, or like familiarity uh, with, <clears throat> with part a before they introduce multiple uh, uh, b- before they introduce part B, part C, part D. So it's yeah. tiered. It's like, it's like first you need to know how to walk and jump. Then you can learn how to grapple. Then you can learn how to hang glide, you know, because, you know, grappling helps you reach high distances. Hang gliding is what you do after you've reached high distances. So perhaps it, they would feel it wouldn't make as much sense to do those in the reverse order, although theoretically they could, but you're feeding people nuggets and it's like a, it's a trail that you're leading them down of, of learning. Right. And it's supposed to be engaging that entire time. You don't want it to be too fast paced. You don't want it to be too slow. Yeah, totally. And I think actually how this maybe ties into a game again is like you oftentimes knock out city. Oh, I want to, I want to knock out city, but when you encounter boss characters, right? Every now and then you'll find a boss character who has little lackey characters that they'll throw at you. And the lackey characters will be characters you fought before. Oftentimes they will be parts of the boss's behavior pattern. And that again is, is things building upon each other, right? So, if, if, you know, big golem boss is throwing little rock characters at me, I've already fought little rock characters, and I'm now used to the boss because the, he has the same attack pattern as the rock characters, plus, like, two new moves, that, to me, seems akin to, you know, learning the algebra and then moving on to the next thing and then getting the cumulative test at the end where it's like, well, shit, okay, I, I understand this is the new big tough boss. I just learned how to defeat him, but I haven't executed it at this level yet. And he's going to throw little werewolves at me or whatever I was just facing before. I think skill trees also illustrate this because, I mean, it would be really overwhelming to enter a game and have like a hundred skill points that you need to fill out immediately. But because skill points are, are awarded as you progress through the game, you're slowly accruing skill points and it makes it more manageable to be able to decide you know how you want to uh like what would you call it like not modify like uh what direction you want to take the character you know how you specifically want to to utilize their upgrades whether you want them to be faster yeah, i would or almost say how you want to modify gameplay yeah i would i would say how you were initially going to say how you want to modify gameplay uh because the skill points are always like, am I going to punch harder? Am I going to be collecting more? Can I like see more? And again, yeah, it all fits into the information processing model, which we've been referencing, which is like, 
I spent a skill point. Now I have this ability that says I, I hit with more hits now. And so that's my incoming information. I saw it. I digested it. And now I need to go out and attack so that I remember I hit with more hits. And eventually when I do that enough times, it'll be in the back of my mind. Oh, yeah, I hit with more hits. Cool. <laughs> like, like, you you know. Yeah, dude, can I I want to share one thing really quick. Um, yeah, this is the like this. uh this is an information processing model, right? The cognitive load theory, uh, yeah. which is a subdiscipline of of psychology. You know, it's like in it's like a, a subset of like cognitive psychology specifically, and cognitive psychology only arose um, as a discipline in like around the eighties. Uh, and the reason was because we started to create uh, computers, right? And computers have uh, terms and like like. Ter- like uh, there are different types of memories and computers, right? There's you have right. you have your RAM, you have your uh, like hard drive, you know, uh, you have like input and output as concepts, um, processing, right? Like the, the so what we basically did with the development of cognitive science uh, of psychology is let's look at these computers that are now you know, emerging and see how they process information and let's apply that to the brain. Um, so it, it's kind of almost like a, like a backwards process, right? Where we're like reverse engineering our conception of the mind based on the, the ways that computers are working. And, and then we're utilizing that structure, that way, this, this information processing model to then um, enhance the efficiency of our learning. And like, I just love that it's like a, we got this because of computers we're applying it to humans in their relationship with computers you know it's like yeah it's a very cool cyclical like just just learning just learning about ourselves trying to thank you for listening to deep in the deep head subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends for updates and discussion, follow us on Reddit at r slash deep in the d Facebook at deep d and subscribe to deep in the d on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the bell. And if you want to ask us questions or you had a chance to share your own D-pad delight on the show, email us at askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com. Be sure to put question or delight in the subject line. Big thanks to 8-Bit Jazz and Kevin McLeod for supplying the music for the show.